Arecibo's collapse, and science cargo to the ISS. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A 1,000-foot radio telescope in Puerto Rico collapsed after sustaining damage earlier this year, sending 900 tons of radio equipment crashing into the dish. The National Science Foundation announced last week a planned decommissioning of Arecibo Observatory after engineers said repairing the damage safely was impossible. For nearly 60 years, Arecibo surveyed the sky, searching for alien life, faraway planets, and tracking near-Earth asteroids. We'll talk with one astronomer about her connection to the dish and what the end of Arecibo means for the scientific community. Then, SpaceX is set to launch a shipment of supplies and science experiments to the International Space Station. We'll talk with the ISS National Lab's chief scientist about some of the experiments heading to space and what it takes to conduct science from the orbiting lab. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. News of Arecibo's planned decommissioning last week sent shockwaves through the astronomical community. The massive dish not only contributed so much to radio astronomy over its 50-plus years of service, it served as an incredible outreach tool for budding scientists who visited the enormous facility and reached an even wider audience on the silver screen with films James Bond's GoldenEye and Contact. While there was some hope that the dish could be saved, after two cables snapped earlier this year, the collapse all but seals the fate of Arecibo. Scientists who worked with Arecibo have taken to social media to mourn the loss of this iconic observatory, including Sandy Springman, a planetary radar astronomer who worked with Arecibo. Sandy, thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, no problem. So uh, tell me about your first meeting with Arecibo. Uh, when did you become acclimated with this uh, incredible observatory? Uh, well, like most millennials... I'd played, well, my friends had played a lot of GoldenEye, so I was familiar with the N64 rendering of Arecibo. I'd seen GoldenEye, the movie, I'd watched Contact. Um, so Arecibo was definitely part of my consciousness. Um, and it actually took me about 15 months to get a job there of persistent badgering the head of the radar group. And finally, I had a job. I had a J-O-B job offer. It had a salary, it had benefits, it was stability. And so I took a bit of red eye to Miami and then flew to San Juan and my future boss picked me up at the airport and we drove the hour and 15, hour and a half to Arecibo. And we'd taken the autopista west from San Juan and we turned south at Arecibo and we'd gone up into the mountainous interior, which are all these karst hills so it's very much up and down and we get up this hill and I see the observatory just hanging there you can see the tops of the three towers and you can see the platform suspended by cables and I must have said something and Mike said oh you haven't been here before <laughs> I said no and Mike said oh if I'd known you hadn't been here I would have brought you down for an interview and I was I was just stunned I mean there's really nothing quite like this in the world. You have this platform suspended 500 feet up in the air in the middle of the Puerto Rican jungle, effectively, amidst all these limestone karst hills. And Mike dropped me off at what uh, are called the bachelor units, which are little duplexes, and each one is a little studio apartment. 
um, with a little kitchenette and a bathroom. And uh, the other half of my duplex was occupied by the observatory director. And you know, I fell asleep that first night with all the little frogs chirping. And the next morning I trundled on down 125 steps to the observatory and you get down there and you kind of poke your head around this cliff and there's this gigantic Gregorian dome just hanging out there just 500 feet up in the air like it's the most normal thing in the world it was a really uh, it's a really striking telescope I've been a lot of places and I've seen some weird things but Arecibo was was just one of the most stunning I'm glad you mentioned GoldenEye at the start, because that is how I got my start with with Arecibo. But I mean, this thing, it, it was so massive and just this incredible feat of engineering that just took people's breath away. And it was, yes, it was an incredible piece of astronomy hardware, but it was even more a, a, a something that inspired people and got people interested in things, right? I mean, is that kind of the legacy you think... Arecibo will leave is that basically communicated just, you know, this massive presence. I think Arecibo's legacy will absolutely be inspiring generations of people to get involved in space science. So we can start out with the just the construction of Arecibo. It was a bunch of like dudes in their 20s and 30s at Cornell, and they weren't astronomers. They were ionosphere physicists. They were astronomers. And someone had this idea and was like, you know, we can measure this atmospheric phenomenon if we build a dish that's 305 meters across. Turns out he made an order of magnitude mistake and they could have measured this phenomenon with a 35 meter diameter dish. But someone during a design review at one point was like, you know, if you tweak this part of the design, you can not only do aronomy and study Earth's ionosphere, but you can use the dish for radio astronomy as well as radar astronomy. So what was initially supposed to just study phenomenon here in our atmosphere, in our ionosphere, suddenly became an instrument that could do three wildly different types of science. And there's really no other facility like that in the world. So the fact that Arecibo has three main focuses in terms of the science it produced is wildly unheard of. And then for its almost 60 years of inspiring students. I mean, so many students came from Cornell, so many students participated in the National Science Foundation's research um, experience for undergraduates. And it wasn't just undergrads, college students from the United States, uh, college students from all around the world somehow managed to get funding to come to Arecibo to spend their summers working with various scientists. There's been a concerted effort to bring in students from the various University of Puerto Rico campuses on the island. There's not necessarily astronomy majors at these uh, at this university, but there's physics majors. And so Arecibo is often the first introduction to space science for some of these students. There's an Arecibo Space Academy, which introduces high school students on the island to space sciences, uh, to astronomy. And so Arecibo has is the um, it's the only science museum on the island. So for generations of Puerto Rican students, Arecibo is their, their gateway to astronomy, to space science, to envisioning themselves as astronauts, um, and to launching them into careers in space science and beyond. You know, one thing that I've learned about Arecibo after covering it this year is that you know, it's more than this observatory. It's part of the community there in Puerto Rico. And there's there's a lot of pride from the people on the island Absolutely. Um, you know, someone who lived there, you know, what was it like living there and being a part of the community? 
for the, the North American and European astronomers associated with the observatory, someone described us as sort of this island of misfit toys. <laughs> uh, it definitely takes, uh, there are a lot of uh, very eccentric types who observe there, who come down there. And uh, it, it was just, it's just a very unique, very um, strongly connected community. And that said, almost everyone in the, the neighborhoods, the little communities, villages around the observatory has had a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent who worked at the observatory, who helped build the observatory, uh, who's involved in the observatory somehow. So Arecibo is this fundamental part of the community and you wouldn't have Arecibo without the community. Um, during Hurricane George's, uh, immediately after the hurricane passed and the rain stopped and the wind died down, people in the surrounding communities started clearing the roads to the observatory. And you would ask, why would you prioritize the observatory right after a disaster? Don't you have these people who live around there? You know, what about them? And it's like, well, the observatory has several diesel generators. It has a 600 foot deep well. So it's going to have electricity and it's going to have water. And this was a very similar thing that happened after Hurricane Maria is that people came to the observatory after the hurricane passed because this was an important place to get resources. Uh, FEMA wound up using a helipad on site to distribute aid to the surrounding communities because you have this established infrastructure there and everyone knows that the observatory exists and is an important thing. Going to the observatory after a hurricane, sending aid there, sending help there, is going to immensely help the surrounding communities. You can't have an observatory without the people around it. An observatory is not just a 900 ton platform hanging out there in space. It's not just the radio receivers, it's not just the antenna, it's not just the radar transmitter or the buildings. You can't do science without people. That is just such a fundamental part of the place and that this observatory inspires uh, such dedication and commitment and loyalty from communities, whether they're in Puerto Rico, whether they're in the United States or around the world. Uh, a number of scientists and staff at the observatory um, and former, former staff and people who've observed there or have other connections to the observatory, we've been having these twice weekly meetings. Initially they were vigils, but I guess today's meeting is going to be more like a wake. And, you know, we had over a hundred people sign on two weeks ago, you know, we hit the capacity of whoever was hosting Zoom account. So now we have a Zoom account with a capacity of 500 and I'm, maybe we'll hit that today, I'm not sure, but that there's such a devotion to this observatory by so many different types of people with so many different backgrounds whether it's folks who were HR at the observatory or the visitor center or maintenance or science or engineers. At the 50th anniversary celebration for Arecibo, you have Frank Drake from SETI. You have Joe Taylor who got a Nobel prize for work he did on pulsars at the observatory. You know, and they're sitting next to folks who make sure that the telescope didn't fall down. It's a really incredible community and you really don't have anything quite like that in the world, I think. We've been speaking with Sandy Springman. She is a planetary radar astronomer who worked with the Arecibo Observatory. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your memories of Arecibo. Sure. Thanks so much. Still to come, how science experiments get to space. That's just ahead when Are We There Yet returns.
You're listening to Are We There Yet? Here on America's Space Station, I'm Brendan Byrne. A SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket is set to launch more supplies and science experiments this weekend to the International Space Station under a partnership with NASA. It's the 21st mission by SpaceX for NASA's commercial cargo program and marks the first launch of the Dragon 2 capsule. Heading to the U.S.'s national lab on the station is more than 15 science experiments, from medical experiments to student-run investigations taking advantage of the microgravity environment on orbit. So what does it take to get a science experiment into space? And what's the big deal with conducting research on orbit? To answer those questions, we are joined by Acting Chief Scientist of the ISS National Lab, Michael Roberts. Michael, thanks for speaking with us. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. First of all, why even conduct experiments in space? What's what's the draw to get science onto the International Space Station? Well, uh, originally, interest there was in maintaining a human presence in space and exploring. So we were looking at uh, technologies and, and better understanding of the fundamental physics uh, and biology of life in that environment, in microgravity, in space. More recently, we began to exploit uh, certain unique advantages of conducting research and technology development in that arena. So whereas NASA continues to support uh, and actively engage in research and technology development to support its exploration goals, we are now also utilizing low Earth orbit and beyond to conduct investigations that inform us about things here on Earth. So we've seen a a lot of interest from pharmaceutical companies because when biology is placed in that microgravity environment, it enables us to explore models of human disease onset and progression here on Earth that are accelerated. So we're all familiar with uh, astronauts talking about how fun it is to be in the microgravity environment and be free floating, but our bones and muscles respond to that lack of mechanical loading by changing their metabolism and that can have detrimental effects. And those detrimental effects, and in some cases, mimic what happens here on Earth as we age. Uh, They mimic uh, the onset of of arthritis and osteoporosis and other conditions. So there are several uh, life science-related investigations that utilize that environment in space to better understand medical conditions here on Earth. Let's say I am a researcher and I've got an idea for an experiment and I want to get it onto the International Space Station. What's that process like? It really begins with uh, the idea. So you know, you have a you have a concept, a, a question, a hypothesis that that you want to explore. Uh, as if you're, you know, working as a, as a fundamental scientist, if you're uh, working for a, a pharmaceutical company or a manufacturing company, and you have a specific process in mind, the conversation really starts with your idea. So what we do here at the ISS National Lab is help you explore ways, new ways, uh, utilizing the International Space Station to answer the question of interest to you. So whether you're coming from industry or coming from academia or uh, coming from other government agencies that typically have not in the past utilized low Earth orbit or space in order to conduct Uh, the research that's in their portfolio, we were established to facilitate and enable those research questions to be uh, executed on board the International Space Station National Lab. So it really just starts with a conversation around what your interest is, what your science question is, and then we uh, put you in contact with the implementation partners, as we call them, Uh, and then the rest of it is 
once we have a good understanding of the science you want to accomplish and how you can accomplish that, we facilitate your, um, your journey uh, from designing your experiment all the way through to getting your data and or samples returned. What makes an experiment or, or research question a good candidate for a space-based experiment? I, I, don't, I don't think I'm making a wild assumption here and thinking that it would have to be small, <laughs> right? <laughs> what are some other yeah. things that it has to be uh, that you say, yeah, this is a good candidate. Let's send this up to space. The, the typical driver certainly applies. So anytime you want to do something in space, mass, power, volume, the amount of crew time required to execute the experiment, those are all considerations related to payload development. But, you know, more appropriately, the driver here is that there is a unique feature of the space environment that can inform and accelerate your scientific discovery. So we begin with that principle. And then the rest of it, you know, how you design the experiment so that you minimize mass power volume and crew time requirements will kind of follow based on that. So we have experiments that are very complex in nature that use rodent, uh, rodents as, as models of, of human disease, right? And those require several steps uh, involved in that, in that process relating to the husbandry of the animals, how to keep them um, healthy and safe while you're conducting the experiment, and then how the data can be returned to the investigator uh, with sufficient level of detail uh, and precision so that they can compare that to, to the ground-based results. So the ideal experiment really is one that takes advantage of some unique aspect of the space environment. So most commonly people are looking at the absence of gravity, that microgravity environment uh, that we have on board the International Space Station during freefall, so that they can understand the fundamental physics or the biological responses to that absence of gravity. But Experiments have also taken place outside the International Space Station on exposure platforms that are more or less interested in, in microgravity uh, as an environmental variable, but are focused on the thermal cycling regime that you get uh, in, in the vacuum of space. They're interested in the exposure of materials or the ability of component devices to operate in that space environment in low Earth orbit and beyond. So they're interested in um, exposure to ultraviolet light, they're interested in exposure to the slightly elevated radiation environment uh, during the orbital path of the International Space Station. We also have investigations that utilize the International Space Station as a satellite, as an Earth observing satellite, so that uh, many companies are, are developing new sensors um, that exploit uh, different regions of the electromagnetic spectrum looking back at Earth to, to better understand uh, Earth-based processes. And, and the International Space Station itself, due to its orbital inclination and the pathway it takes and the fact that it's a crude uh, environment, isn't ideal uh, as, a, as a satellite sensor, but it does offer some unique advantages in that you have the ability to test a sensor, to test a technology uh, on board the International Space Station, and then return that device back to Earth so you can understand what its uh, uh, resilience is going to be in that operating environment. So we have people, you know, from, from all different uh, sectors of, of the U.S. economy that take advantage of different aspects of that unique operating environment that the International Space Station exists in. Let's talk a little bit about some of the experiments that are heading up on CRS-21. Um, as you mentioned, um, you know, medical sciences uh, are, are good candidates for these experiments, and, and there's quite a few um, medical investigations 
um, heading up there, including one looking at influenza. What kind of Earth-based benefit would, would this experiment have? What, what's it looking at? Kind of tell me a little bit about the this one. Vaccination in general and exposure to uh, microbes uh, and our immune systems are responsive to our metabolic stasis and our environment, right? So here on Earth, as we age, our immune systems become less proficient at combating infection. We see a similar effect in crew members uh, upon exposure to the space environment. Now, whether that is strictly related to exposure to microgravity or it's a combination of that change in microgravity and elevated stress levels, you know, while, while crew members are up there, the effect is that you have uh, immune modulation that occurs in the crew members. And you have to be wary of that if you're going to do long-term missions. So the International Space Station itself with crew rotations of six months or so isn't really a high-risk environment. But if your immune system is not going to be functional for periods of years, uh, as would be uh, the case in, in, the, in the event of a, of a Mars crewed mission, that becomes a serious concern. So investigators are exploiting that change in our immune function to better understand how we respond to vaccination events to make sure that the vaccines have the same uh, safety and efficacy in that uh, unique environment of space that they have here on Earth. And in some cases, those models mimic what, happened to, uh, what happens to us here on Earth as we normally age. So I would not you know, describe our immune function as being dysfunctional but it is certainly less capable than it is here on Earth. Uh, and there's a lot of research that's been conducted both uh, on humans. Uh, uh, the Kelly twins, you know, one flew for just under a year and one was here on Earth. One of the important uh, discoveries in that investigation was the response to vaccination uh, given in the the flu vaccine on orbit versus here on the ground. There's also another experiment or a handful of experiments on there that are either run by or designed for students. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, the outreach that the ISS National Lab is able to do with with um, with these experiments? Yeah, so uh, the ISS National Lab has a very active uh, STEM engagement program. So we obviously uh, you are very interested in um, enabling access to space because, you know, nothing sells like the NASA meatball uh, and the excitement of, of taking humans into that environment and understanding the way that we evolved and, and our, our, the way our solar system and nature operates. So we work with a, a multitude of, of partners who have um, different approaches to doing STEM engagement. So all of them are focused on science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and workforce development. And several of those experiments target, you know, demographics from kindergarten through uh, seniors in high school, so K through 12. We also have uh, education partners that target undergraduate and graduate programs. They offer opportunities for science to be conducted in space. And in large part, uh, you know, they're benefiting from ease of access to space with the commercial contracts that uh, NASA has uh, and the modularity, um, infusion of, of modularity-based technologies such as small sats and kind of cube, cube format designs for experiments have opened up opportunities for low cost access to space so that even individual elementary schools and high schools or school districts 
can engage with these education partners to design experiments. So there's, I think, on the order of about 30 student spaceflight experiments that are uh, flying on this mission. It enables students to go through the whole scientific process from designing, uh, thinking of a question, designing an experiment to test that question, and then collecting the data and analyzing it. We only, you know, have had that capability, I would say, over the past 10 years or so. We were able to do, NASA was able to do, you know, uh, and other, uh, the international partners as well, were able to sponsor student experiments, uh, you know, since the first humans went into space. But those opportunities were very few and far between. Now they're becoming much more common because the, the price point of conducting that science has, has fallen so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, Michael, SpaceX is just one of uh, a handful of commercial operators now delivering to the ISS. We have Northrop Grumman, soon Sierra Nevada. Um, how are these private companies helping research efforts on the station? I mean, I've got to think that it makes it much easier to get stuff up to space, right? Yeah, they are. They're absolutely key. Um, I mean, we... We couldn't do anything uh, with relationship to the sponsored payloads that ISS National Lab sends to station without access to the, the commercial uh, cargo providers. It's a very interesting time in that we now have commercial operators and they've each pioneered new technologies or slightly different approaches to the way they get cargo up and, and conduct their science. So. SpaceX has, of course, pioneered you know, reusable vehicles and the return of samples uh, back to Earth, but it requires uh, uh, you know, several G-forces that are, that are uh, experienced by the payloads upon return, and that can have some effect upon biological and life sciences experiments. So the Sierra Nevada Corporation vehicle, with its ability to take off vertically and land horizontally, is going to offer some unique features that will be of great benefit for animal models, uh, the rodent research experiments that are flown in microgravity, uh, in the microgravity environment. The uh, Northrop Grumman vehicle um, has the ability to loiter on orbit after it's completed its uh, deposit of, of cargo on board the International Space Station. So that enables researchers to design experiments that may be slightly uh, have risks that would preclude them from being performed inside the crewed cabin of the International Space Station. So it enables new science to be performed as those payloads essentially uh, are hitching a ride up to low Earth orbit and they enable investigations, uh, for example, combustion science that you can do at larger scale inside the, the Cygnus vehicle because you don't have to have it inside a confined environment inside the crewed cabin of station. So all of those vehicles have features which uh, are attractive and enable new science investigations that were it not for them, we would not be able to execute at all. Well, we've been speaking with Michael Roberts. He's the acting chief scientist of the ISS National Lab. Michael, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Brendan. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nellie Taveros, and our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Give on this Giving Tuesday by visiting wmfe.org slash donate. 
Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.